Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So, this week's guest is JJ Gonson. JJ has had what might be, I would say, some of the wildest jobs of maybe anyone I've ever known. <laughs> she has been a photographer for everyone from Elliot Smith to Nirvana to The Descendants to Dag Nasty. She's a manager, a booking agent. Uh, she runs a venue, uh, which is to be expected. Um, but let's just say that there is, you know, I guess expected insofar that she's on this podcast. Um, but let's just say there's a turn in her story that leads to the literal circus. So there's a lot going on there. She has a ton of experience in like music spaces generally. She, as I said, runs a venue now. Um both before and now during COVID, which is a whole situation, of course. She's the president of the New England chapter of NEVA, which is the National Independent Venue Association. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's uh, real nice. After that, as mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about pronouns. So stick around for that if that is something that you have been wanting to learn more about. So personally, this week, I've got some music stuff on the horizon, which feels real nice, uh, including a performance with a rock roulette band fundraiser for Riot Rhode Island, where I get to play my baritone, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and we may or may not be doing a cover of Heaven by Brian Adams. I may have mentioned that. If not, I'm just very excited about it because it's a song that I feel like needs to be covered more. Apparently, it was in some movie I don't remember what it is. I didn't know about that. Anyway, we're doing cover of it, too, and it's fun. So uh, if you want to support super impactful music-based programming for cis girls, women, and trans and non-binary youth and adults, I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Before we get into today's conversation, I do want to thank this episode's sponsors for making Midriff and this episode a reality. So first, Earthquaker Devices. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you're probably familiar with the Rad Pedals created in Ohio by Earthquaker Devices. My favorite thing they've shared recently was an improv set by Sudan Archives, where she loops her violin through a bunch of pedals and then sings it to the pickup. It creates some very cool sounds, as you might imagine. Definitely check that out. And if you love their pedals, you'll probably also love Earthquaker's merch. Their Octoskull logo is awesome. I just love it. Uh, and you can get it on pretty much whatever you want, including basically a whole rainbow of sweatshirt, sweatshirt colors. Also, I was at a Halloween store the other day and I told my child they could pick out one thing like to decorate the house or whatever. And what did he pick out? An octo skull. There you go. I'll share that on social media or something soon because it's hilarious. Anyway, for merch, for pedals, for all of this business, check out Earthquaker Devices. Com. I also want to thank Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. Whether you play guitar, bass, and trumpet, to harp, roads, and circuit bent speaking spells, Stompbox Sonic 
We'll work with you to find the right effects to fit your project. They're the best. Check them out at stompoxonic.com. Last but not least, we have Holcomb Guitars. Nick Holcomb, he builds just beautiful custom guitars uh, to your exact specifications. And he also has this mobile guitar repair setup, which is great. That means that he will come to you, to your home or wherever you want to meet him, uh, maybe at your child's uh, daycare, as I have, <laughs> uh, in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, probably Connecticut, I, I'm going to guess, uh, fixing your guitar on site or picking it up and dropping it off when he's done. Nobody does that except for Nick. It's the best. He has set up and repaired and modified many of my own instruments, and he does great work. I also like knowing that we share values on important topics, and I'm guessing if you're listening, that is important to you too. That and not being treated, as I've mentioned, like a baby. I don't want that. You don't want that. Nick won't do that. So uh, he'll just treat you like a person, and that's what you want. So if you want to learn more about Holcomb Guitars, check out HolcombGuitars.com or follow him on Instagram at Holcomb Guitars. All right. So with that, let's get into our interview with JJ. JJ, welcome to Midriff. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Hey. And thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. How fortuitous. Look, we're both in the same (laughs) place. Let's chat. Let's. So for folks that somehow might not be familiar with you, which I don't know why that would be, but here we are. Can you introduce yourself, your your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Whoa. That's a huge... I'm asking you to to do this in like less than three minutes. So this is the hyper abbreviated version. I was thinking you wanted to get into more. There's time for more. Okay. My name is and has been for most of my life, JJ Gonson. It is spelled two J's, no dots. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's an interesting place to have been in the seventies. And I started taking pictures when I was about five. I also used to sleep with a radio and I listened to the great hits of the 60s when I was real little. I had a transistor radio with a little earplug, which looks a lot like an AirPod, only with a wire. I was given a camera when I was bat mitzvah, so I was 12 probably. My grandmother gave me a camera, not a fancy camera. It was a basic kit of the day camera. It was a Minolta XG1. It had the stupidest shutter system ever invented. It was a (laughs) finger. Somehow it like felt the heat of your fingers. So if it was cold, I used to like heat my finger up by blowing on it. And then I could get like one or two shots. That's wild. So, um, and when it went wrong, it went wrong. And everyone was like, yeah, we're not even going to try to fix that. What the (laughs) fuck heat sensor Minolta? You Wow. That's, uh, it, I don't know what they were thinking. So they, uh, yeah. So that camera came with a fixed 50 and I think I got a Vivitar flash. So really low quality, but my baby, fully manual. The other thing I got from my bat mitzvah was a copy of fresh fruit for rotting vegetables, the seminal dead Kennedy's record. And I was on my way. Mm -hmm. I 
started listening. It's like a winning combo right there. It's all yeah. right there. Yeah, it was a good experience. <laughs> you know, I graduated to adulthood, right? That's what you do. Like, I actually did the thing. There you go. I got these things. Wow. Like it actually it was sort of utterly formative, symbolic of who you utterly would be formative. Yeah. And check this shit out. When I was a little kid, when I was in nursery school, my nursery school made a cookbook as a fundraiser. And it was so well done with these cute, very 60s drawings and like type that was Xerox or not even Xerox. And it would have been like Rapidograph or whatever it was. And it was super mm -hmm, cute. Mm -hmm. And it was called something like kids can cook or something. And I was at the school and I mm -hmm. had a recipe and the drawing of me on the hat, it says, um, because my, my given name is Julia, it says chef Julia. So mm -hmm. also Aww. foretold because I was a chef for years and years and years sort of my day job, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. All of the, all of the, the signs were there. <laughs> yep. They were yep. all there, whether or not they get picked up immediately, but they, they were all there. there. <laughs> they were all there. Yeah. So obviously you said you grew up listening to a mm -hmm. lot of music and then, you know, you got the dead Kennedys record when you're 12. Did you ever play or was that, was it more of like a, just like real avid listener at the time? Or? I was, um, I studied guitar until I was about in my early teens and my guitar player said, it's too bad. Mm -hmm. You can't play drums because you're a girl because I had better rhythm than I did musical ability, like sensitivity. And I mm -hmm. can sing my sister and I sing in harmony, but I have such awful, like my throat is really not great from years of screaming and, and I have horrible, horrible, horrible stage fright. And I can't sing in front of mm -hmm. even a couple of people. So I like to sing when lots of people are singing together, like at a rock show where yep. nobody can hear me. Yep. So I was in bands a couple of times. It didn't go well. Oh, I was in one band. I was in a punk band in like the, mm -hmm. I don't know, like the mid eighties, I guess. My friend Sluggo would be like, it was 1984. They formed in August and they <laughs> broke up in November. No, we were together a little longer than that. We were called Feeding Frenzy. And I was the lead vocalist. Nice. And we opened for seven seconds. Yeah. Awesome. At the rat. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I was barefoot. Yeah. At the rat. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh my God. This is going to be like 18. Come on uh, and I used to, because I, well, I mean, I assumed that you had played, but I hadn't seen anything in any of, in any of my research about what, you know, having, you having been nope. in bands, but I assumed that based on the rest of your story, that that was part of the, the calculus. Only at, a, only at ladies yeah. rock camp. Well, so, I mean, everyone's every, in right. Ladies Rock Camp. It's, it's, you have to, it's like it's the thing that we do. Know, so I've been in 10 it's automatic. Because I've yeah. done Ladies Rock for 10 years. So I've been in 10 bands. Oh. Were you, but you were as a coach or? No, I actually camped. Um, it was like my spa oh, okay, cool. weekend. I got to just super soak in songwriting and hanging out with everybody and being fun. But the last year and one of the last shows before the pandemic at once was the Ladies Rock mm -hmm. Showcase. The last year I did coach and it was extremely satisfying. And I was prepared to move into oh. that place because it was time. <laughs> it was time. And I could coach in yeah. so many different areas and I really loved it. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. It seems like a good Yeah. Fit. But of all totally. the instruments that I play at Rock Camp, it turns out that my favorite is drums and it comes a close second to bass. I really like the rhythm instruments. I was told that I couldn't play mm -hmm. drums when I was about 13. 
I had tried piano and violin and guitar and like none of them really vibed with me. I like to sing. So I can, I can play guitar. Like I can, I know the chords, but like, it's not my happy place. Like I don't want to play guitar. <laughs> I really hate playing guitar. You, you'll do it if, if, uh, if you yeah, must. Like but... I'd much rather if yeah. you really need me to hold down some kind of like tune, give me a bass and I'll just hold the whole thing down. Cause I do have really yeah. good rhythm. Like I really understand that. And then I have this thing that I think everybody probably has it, but like sometimes you get lucky or I don't know, but there's this thing that I get when I know I'm listening to a good song and I'm sure you know what I mean, but that mm -hmm. has, I think of that as almost being like another kind of musical skill. Cause I think not everybody right, like gets the, it. The, like the feeling, right. Like the feeling of like, when you hear it, like when there's a moment in a song where it drops and you're like that, that yes. is a good thing. Like I know it, I right. know what the good things are. So like, I'm a good producer. I'm a good maker mm -hmm. of the right space for something, but I couldn't make that something. I'm very fortunate to have a co-write credit on one song on one record. And I'm very proud of that. I'm like, I wrote a song, but all I did was write the chord <laughs> structure. What was the song? Mm -hmm. Can you, can you share that or not? Oh yeah. It's totally public knowledge. It's, um, it's called no name number one and it's on Roman candle by Elliot Smith. Ah. And it yes. was a song that was originally yeah. yes. called Saint Like, which is a line mm -hmm. at the beginning of the song at a party she is waiting, looking kind of spooky and withdrawn. It's a terrific song. Like she could be underwater, the mighty mother with her hundred arms swept all aside. I hate to walk behind other people's ambitions. Yup. There it is yeah, right there. That's great. Bam. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, and I think it's like with someone like Elliot Smith or something like seeing to be able to, so you're writing the music yourself. Like you can, you have some of that ability, obviously, but then like being able to recognize it in other people. And I feel like some of the things that Elliot does with like chord changes and space and things like that, I feel like has some of those things that you're talking about. You're like, oh, that's the oh, thing. Oh, yeah. You know, All and over I, the place. every, you know, every song for yeah, most of it, every yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, those songs are like, it's funny. What almost came out of my mouth is those songs are sick, right? Like, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, I always think like, what would he think of my saying that? Like, he would have laughed. Actually, honestly, he would have laughed. He would have been doing <laughs> something now. We all know, like, those songs, they just poured out of him. They could have kept pouring out of him. So... Yeah. I mean, for folks who might not know about your connection to oh, sure. Elliot Smith. So like a lot of. Yeah, because we only got as far as my bar, my bat mitzvah, right? <laughs> I know we stopped there and then we took a right. detour. So, so, so here after we go. I was bat mitzvahed, I started to take pictures. And when I was in high school, I got very serious about black and white photography. And I spent quite a lot of time in the dark room. I became something called the master of the guild. I was very fortunate to get kicked out of public school which landed me in a school for kids who basically made art and did, you know, a lot of drugs and hung out and it was great. 
And I, uh, I super soaked myself in that dark room for three years. And what I learned, I, I am definitely a portrait artist. So there's no question. I like to capture a moment. I try to capture every single moment. We'll talk about that, what I'm doing now to capture moments later. Mm -hmm. In the process of trying to capture the moment, I realized when I got to college, maybe I was even still in high school, I was standing in line for a Who's show at the Paradise, and I started talking to the kid in front of me who really was about the same age, but I thought of him as much older, and he was from Marblehead, and he had a fanzine, and he was going to be you. Um, his fanzine was called Triple X, and it was a really hardcore-focused journal. But we were interested in more than just hardcore, and we wrote and shot together for a number of magazines, including Thrasher and Rip and Spin and Cream and even um, the Boston Globe. Like we did uh, Thrasher, we did a whole series on hardcore bands for Thrasher, which was great, like New York hardcore. I think I did Jane's Addiction for him at one point. Like it was, it was fun. It was good times. Definitely. It was a a really, a really fast and furious few years. You know, it was college and then we were done. I, I realized while I was standing in line with this guy, because I don't know, I hate to walk behind other people's ambition. What can I say? (laughs) I realized that I could get into rock shows for free and with full access if I brought a camera. So I coattailed very happily on Mike Gitter. Thanks, Mike. I coattailed very happily on Mike Gitter, first to a lot of hardcore, and then I knew the clubs, and I started to freelance to the local places. Uh, yeah, so I I started to shoot rock bands, and I then realized that I was learning things in my shooting rock bands that would enable me to help other rock bands, local rock bands to book shows. I was meeting the people that worked at the venues and talking to the bands about local bands. And the other thing I was doing was my house became a place that bands from far away could stay and get a shower and I would cook them breakfast and my boyfriend Sluggo would hang out and like they'd geek out about whatever we were all geeking out about at the time. Often we would share music Mm -hmm. with each other and Uh, We would have seen them the night before and we talk about their recordings, stuff like that. So that is, (laughs) and that's how I met Nirvana, but a lot of other bands too, (laughs) important bands like Skin Yard, Good Grief, my my brain. But I remember a lot, but see, then I'm like a bunch of bands from the Northwest (laughs) who were signing to labels like Sub Pop um, Mm -hmm. and CZ Records. There was this whole kind of contingent that found my phone number and were like, okay, here they come. And one of them mm-hmm. was Nirvana, which is great because then I got to take pictures of them and they were amazing, but I didn't have my camera with me that night because I was on a date with Sluggo, my boyfriend. It was a date night <laughs> and there was only 13 people there. So nobody was shooting, but somebody did record it. Oh yeah. If you look online, I, on I, it's always amazing to me when there are, when there's video of a show from like prior to cell phones, <laughs> you know, like 1988 a small show like that. Yeah. In right. Itself, so. Right. And then, okay. And then I went to Portland, Oregon. When I graduated, I actually first, you're going to laugh. So first I had gone to San Francisco and picked up work at the Cirque du Soleil and they'd put me in the electrical department in that way that they just, cause they're Canadian. So they would just pick up day laborers. They didn't put all of us on concessions. I actually ended up in electrics. And so I got to learn about rigging like 
a circus. I, yes. So I then applied for a job with the Big Apple Circus as an electrician and I got it. So first after college, I went to become an electrician with the Big Apple Circus, but I didn't like it. It was abusive. It was actually abusive. And like, I was not going to blow the whistle on the abuse because I'm really super passive aggressive and non-confrontational. You can ask anyone. I just left. (laughs) That was my way of dealing with that. And then I was like, I had nowhere to go. So I went to Atlanta and I got stuck in Atlanta for a little while. And that's a whole other whatever. And I worked for the company that was like building sets for like Reebok and Coca-Cola. It was super cool. Like hand painting. It was really fun. And then in Atlanta, I already knew somebody in Oregon. My ex-boyfriend was in Oregon. I already knew someone there. And then I met people in Atlanta that I had also met through him in Portland. So there was this kind of like triangulation of like, I had tried to stay in Seattle the same trip I'd been to. I, I sort of ran away for like a summer to the West Coast trying to figure out if I could stay there. And like, I couldn't, but San Francisco was ridiculous. It was so expensive. It was was like moving to Cambridge now. And uh, I didn't like Seattle. It felt unwelcoming. And so I loved Portland. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of things about it that were pulling me back. People I had met that I really liked who were reaching out and saying, yeah, we've got a place for you to stay when you get here. And so I drove across the country and I had sort of while I was finishing my degree, I made this very dramatic retirement from the music photography industry. And I remember calling Thrasher and my editor at Thrasher, who was like the guy, I can't even what Puss had, what was, I don't remember his real name, like the guy. I remember him being like, why you're 21? Why don't you just take a break? And I was like, no, foul beast. I want nothing to do with the music industry anymore. And I did that like at least two more times. So I feel like that's just something that you do when you're 21 as you just make grand just burn every like bridge that. that you can yeah. see. Just well, set them all on fire. With I like, mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. <laughs> that was my blowtorch sound. Yes, that was perfect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was me burning it all to the ground. Uh, all right. So I I threw everything in the trash can and went west in my VW microbus with an abusive boyfriend who I picked up in Atlanta who wouldn't leave. Like that's a bad sign when you can't get rid yeah. of someone and they like aren't just like cool, nice three month fling. See ya. Yeah. And you like right. try to drive away and they like get in the van with you and you're like, eh. So again, like passive aggressive and non-confrontational. I just let him beat me up for a while. So, uh, we ended up in Portland. We bopped around. We ended up in an amazing house. I got a job at a couple of places, but uh, including a lighting house where I strung lights on like the zoo. I was the little one. So I got to climb on the red pandas cage because the red panda is very sensitive. I know. And I got electrocuted (laughs) on the roof of the elephant (laughs) barn, but fortunately I got electrocuted and thrown towards the roof and not over the edge into the elephants. So there you go. But I had experience with elephants in the circus too. So I felt very comfortable around the elephants. I knew they would kill me. Yes. Like I knew that they wouldn't have any mercy. So I was like, I'm going to try to not. Yeah. Anyway, so more stories, but I, um, I did 
eventually end up at a cafe because I had done a lot of low-level cafe work, restaurant work in mm-hmm. my, and I talked my way. This man was desperate for help. I talked my way into a dishwashing position. And two days after he hired me, he said, you are not a dishwasher. You're a line cook. And he moved me to the line where I nailed it for months. And then he said, I need you in the bakery. And he put me in the bakery where I nailed it for many more months. And while I was working there, I was on the phone with a long curly phone cord booking tours. But we'll go back to that. Pretty soon after I got there, I met a friend who is still a friend named Jason Mitchell. And Jason Mitchell introduced me to his friends who were in bands, including Neil Gust and Elliot Smith, who had just moved to Portland, Elliot's place of high school, although he wasn't from Portland, but um, he had moved back to his high school place after finishing college at Hampshire, Hampshire. And he was a political science major and a very, very, very talented songwriter. They had started a band. I did agree to go see it, although I had retired from the music industry and I was not interested in taking pictures. I had taken pictures driving across the country of like beautiful mountain ranges, which like someday when it's all a barren wasteland will be valuable. But I, I wasn't shooting music, but I was still shooting, by the way, with that piece of shit, Minolta. And if you look at my back <laughs> catalog, you'll see it's all very soft because it's a piece of shit camera. It's like my look is very soft, high mm-hmm. grain, mm-hmm. very soft, not out of focus, but like not razor sharp, like my iconic optics, not so much. Mm-hmm. So I had two cameras at that point. I did have a little Zeiss, a little uh, T3, T2. T2, which was really cool and has a little size lens, but I knocked it out of whack really fast. But I do have this amazing body of the circus and it's all from like the top of the tent and stuff like that. It's its own art book, posthumous art book. Posthumous of the circus? Well, it did close for a while, but I think it's open again. Posthumous of me. Ah. I have too many other things to do. We'll put it on the list. So thank you. I'll get an intern to put it together. We'll get a co-op. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, so there I was in Portland and I started going to shows again and I had a camera at the first Heat Miser show that I went to, which I think was their second show because my friend was like, you really got to see this band. And he was right. And I knew it. Heat Miser, Heat Miser for folks who don't know, being Elliot's band prior to his solo work. Yep. Yep. Yes. And if you don't know who Elliot and... Smith is, which is legit because I'm a little obscure here, he is best known for the soundtrack of Goodwill Hunting and a song which is Needle in the Hay, which is in the Royal Tannenbaums. Those are probably the gateway drugs, the gateways to Elliot Smith. I honestly forgot about the Goodwill Hunting thing. That's I totally forgot about that until just it's now. It's enough of a uh, classic film that when you say that, people are like, oh yeah, because there's that there's yeah. that song that um the uh is it like more like electric right what is it called that what it it's like from figure eight maybe maybe i don't remember i don't remember but there's definitely oh you know what it might be it might be that song about i'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl morning after oh yeah 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 it's a it's a gloomy song it's like, it's supposed to be a song about how he's in love with the world and it's like all in a minor key. 
No, it's not. But it's like, <laughs> honestly, that's kind of my favorite thing is people singing about either singing about really happy things in a, in a sad way or, or, you know, singing about really sad things in with mm-hmm. happy music. Are that's, you like a huge, my I chemical romance fan? I, I probably couldn't name one, my chemical romance. That song, is not sorry. true. That is not true. Really? What, what, that's not true. What is one? Um, the black parade. Oh, you're right. I would be able to know that. Okay. I feel embarrassed because I worked with like younger folks for so long that I should know that. But now that you said that, that I do song, that, yeah, yes. that one. But there's some other okay, ones that you've probably you. seen like parodied in in talent shows and stuff like that that are pretty phenomenal. One is probably Blood. that's that's a great song. Yeah, hmm. that whole record is about his grandmother dying of cancer, and oh it's really gosh. phenomenal. It's really powerful. Hmm. I wouldn't have known that except I had I had kids who were like the right age for it. And yes got really into it and it's cool it's cool stuff i approve how, how old are your kids now uh they are 20 and 18 okay yeah so that makes sense that they would have been like right in there yeah like it was already all out yeah. and the band was just winding down and frank iero mm-hmm. came through my venue right as my daughter mm-hmm. was just about to discover them but hadn't mm-hmm. yet and i think maybe didn't quite she did talk to him for a long time but i don't i think she was pretty little she was like 11 or something yeah he has twins the same age as my daughter and they had a they had a real hang it was cool yeah so i have a lot of respect for those those bands i mean i have respect for any band i mean i'm looking around i'm actually in my daughter's room right now and i'm looking around and i'm like yeah the bands that she has like you know that she cares about are legit mm-hmm. bands they're they're big pop bands because their songs are very good yeah i don't feel that about all yeah i mean it's i think that there's it. yeah i mean i feel like there's a thing that i think about a lot which is like how a lot of the more popular bands get crapped on uh or like when they become popular that oh, happens the right? out thing? by like you know the yeah the selling out thing the industry's like oh that's terrible but you it's know like, what i, I think I think that it is very, very, very difficult psychologically to be both a strong creative person and a strong business person. Speaking Mm -hmm. from a lot of personal experience (laughs) and I do it and I know that my goal is to create something lasting that supports the music community. So... Mm -hmm to do that it's going to have to be sponsored and that has been very very complicated for me because yes i have a really hard time i recently i never thought of myself as a perfectionist but a friend of mine recently pointed out that i'm a perfectionist and i was like wow that's definitely getting in the way of this this being easy Mm -hmm. well it's i think there's two things with that right so it's like so one thing related to the industry, I think that like people, partly people crap on things that are popular because young girls like it and young girls are not seen as being valuable. And so therefore anything they like is not considered valuable. That's a great, That's one thing. great, great, great thought. Thank you for that. Oh yeah. I mean, so, but then the other thing, like with what you're talking about, it's like, uh, I think making those decisions as like a, as an artist, like I feel like as a business, you need to have like be very clear about what your values are 
And if you can document those, and I feel like as a person, even like I think about this a lot, like I need to like write down, if you write down what your values are, then it makes it so much easier to make those decisions mm-hmm. around like core principles, who you're going to partner with. Yeah, core yeah values. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, totally. um, my brain just heard the word document <laughs> and I, I wanted to bring up something that is very mm-hmm. important to me, which has to do with documentation which I have taken to an extreme this summer of stupid proportion. I've been conducting a series of outdoor music events, 25 of them. The last three are this weekend, and some of them have been all-day festivals. This weekend, two of them are all-day festivals. We will have recorded about 150 sets by the time we're done five cameras, full board feeds, and Zoom feeds, ambient feeds, high-quality recordings. It's something like seven terabytes of data. (laughs) Wow. So I have become so obsessed with documentation (laughs) that a camera pointed at a band is no longer enough for me. I need the whole thing in surround, right? right? Like I, I shoot now. We, I, I think equipment is a really interesting conversation. So I went from one Minolta to another Minolta, manual to manual, kept my lenses, kept my flash, low quality, not sharp lenses, not fine glass. And even like to add insult to injury, probably some kind of skylight filter to keep me from touching the lens, which meant even more like low quality class <laughs> because in a bar, you don't want people throwing something and hitting your lens. So, right. um, which never happened. Interesting. Hmm. That was me knocking on wood. I know. Knock yeah. on wood. <laughs> so, um, oh, but I've had so much stuff thrown into my monitors that it's more than made up for it. My stage monitors. So, When film started to give way to digital, I was living, and this is like light years later after all of the like touring and all of it, I was living on Martha's Mm -hmm. Vineyard and I switched to a half megapixel digital camera and sort of stepped my way Uh up through all of the elves as they, like every year I'd get a new elf and I'd go up like one megapixel or two megapixels and then it started to be more so Mm -hmm. um that was because i was shooting something on martha's vineyard i on martha's vineyard i work for the martha's vineyard times doing lifestyle photography and um i was in the rain shooting a horse show and it killed that stupid finger sensor thing oh dang i mean it wasn't really meant for this world probably let's be honest right it was a bad idea (laughs) based on the way you've described it bad idea bad (laughs) bad idea loved that camera bad idea so um at that point i worked my way up through some digital and i did use Mm -hmm. it for like that newspaper that i was working for but i did switch back i i still shot film of like my family my kids stuff like that when they were little Mm -hmm. but i didn't I didn't make the switch to like big digital ever. And, um, I kind of took a lot of time out in a way from shooting when mm-hmm. my kids were little and just taking a lot of pictures of them. But when I decided that I really wanted to start to shoot again, when I had a club and I 
was around bands a lot. And I wasn't, I never shot in seven years and not all summer, the entire summer series. I never shot a band on film, never the entire time. So why? So because I'm documenting it on five cameras with full sound and because um, (laughs) there was so many photographers in the pit, I felt like it was unnecessary. But what I did a few years ago was I decided not to switch to a full format digital SLR. I bought an 11 Pro iPhone. So what was that decision about? Is that like, because that feels like a a big decision. It was a huge decision. It took me like six months to make. For my money, I get more versatility from the iPhone and um, it's always with me, which is for somebody who's completely obsessed with capturing every single solitary moment that ever happened. I shoot thousands and thousands of pictures on my iPhone, like so many. So it was just a logical it, it, but I mean, I mean, it makes, but I'll tell you, it's a cute story. So here's what happened. I was mm-hmm. with my friend, Mark Shaw, amazing photographer who has amazing equipment understanding. And I went to his photo studio where he put camera after camera in my hands. And he was like, here's one you can't afford. Mm-hmm. It's $20,000. And here's one you could afford. It's $2,000. And like, you know, put camera mm-hmm. after camera in my hands And then he put this camera in my hands and I was like, oh, I really like this one. This is what I want. This is like the right way that it works. And I really like it. And he was like, yeah, of course you do. That's a film camera. And at that point I realized, and he said, just get the, he said, just get the 11 pro JJ, stop it. Just get the 11 pro and shoot with your phone because it has video and it has photo and it's good enough. It's good enough. It really is. Well, it's like people say the best camera you have is the one that's with you, right? And I feel like someone like you who has had this experience of being there during these very pivotal moments, I can see how that could cause you to just have the most intense possible FOMO possible of anyone, basically. When Rocky Erickson played at the Once Ballroom and those guys mm-hmm. from the sixties with the ink on the platters came in and did the light show. I mm-hmm. would have died if I couldn't have captured that. Like it would have killed me to not yeah. be able to capture that. There's a lot of things that yep. I didn't capture and there's a lot of things that I didn't show up for, but I really love having the power in my hands. And the good news is a lot of times I would take a little bit, a little video just to remember the, the sound of it. So I have a lot of little mm-hmm. video clips of things even before I had the good iPhone, but it, that was a really important decision. It was a major, major, major decision. And in a lot of ways, it was a decision that recognized that print is not a thing mm-hmm. and that things are seen backlit now and transparent. And if I was going to show work that was shot on my phone, I would want to show it on light boxes. <laughs> Because it would represent mm-hmm. better what the experience is of them. So I show, I print the old work, the film work, but I don't like the way the digital looks. That's fair. That makes sense. I mean, they have, it's like using mm-hmm. them for different purposes. Which it's totally, totally different sense. purposes. It's totally different yeah. purposes. But it, are you going to actually, 
what like what's do you have a plan for all of the the stuff that you recorded over the summer? Yeah. So we'll get in in a second. I want to talk about I want to there's a couple things I want to talk about related specifically to once as well. But the once being the venue that you run the all of that material that you have, is it like do you have a, a specific plan for it or is it just to have it and then you'll figure out what to do with it later? The plan is there's a couple of plans. One plan is to cut together some shows and then to ticket for those shows to mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. a venue that we're starting to work with to fill some off nights. And my idea is to make that a very inexpensive ticket and then nice. to um to to get people in to drink at the bar so that the venue has some support. The um mm-hmm. the idea is to get people together. It's it, we'll do it in the winter. You know, it'll be like a, like a winter winds, winter Wednesday series or something like that. I should write that down. So uh, winter winter Wednesday. Wednesday. (laughs) So we're going to do some of that. We're going to cut together some sets like that. We're going to, we're going to stream some. So we have this, we have this presence. I, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's a YouTube channel. It's called the once virtual venue. And we have been working on it for, I don't know, since a year ago, May 1st. And to clarify for folks, like, so you run a venue called Once in Somerville, yeah. Massachusetts, and you've run that since 2014. Is that accurate? Yeah. And that kind of started out of you, based on my research, being interested in running events, but mostly food more for like yeah, catering and like running that kind of event. And then you sort of like tip things. accidentally yeah. ended up into a, having a, having a music venue. Exactly. Yeah. And so then as the, as the pandemic started, you're basically in, the, we're in the point where you're like, well, now what, as with many venues, you're like, now what? And it seems like, you know, I know everybody says pivot right now and it sounds, it's terrible, but like that's, it feels like you were one of the spaces that were able to do that in a real way that was very successful, both in your virtual events and in your like summer series stuff. So I think it should be, I'm not sure how, how people feel about, I mean, so I, I said earlier, it's hard to be both a strong business person and a strong creative person. And I am strong in both of those areas. And the business part is a big part of what I think about all the time. And, um, mm-hmm. that is, I, I'm, sh- my father always says fail early and often he was a corporate attorney mm-hmm. and I don't fail. I, I fail <laughs> early, but not often. I don't close my business. I have the same business I've had for 16 years. It's called cuisine on locale. And it's a catering company that is actually the parent company of the whole thing. Once is a brand like M&Ms is to Mars. So, um, mm-hmm. but that's okay. We are once. So once, by the way, stands for one night creative event. It's the concept that no matter how you try, you only experience something once you, you have a different experience every time. And even if we record it with five cameras and mics and everything, you're not standing next to your friend when, uh, somebody walks by and you're not sure if it's somebody else, but you have turned to them and like, you know, it's, it's not the same experience, which is why I want to do it mm-hmm. in a, in a venue, not necessarily. I mean, we are going to do virtual right. too. We got it. But so, um, yeah. yeah. But have, so as far as like the, so you've talked a little bit, I, it seems, I think it makes sense that you would run a venue based on all of your, like, you know, we didn't get it too much into like your booking and band management stuff that you did with heat miser and a number of other mm-hmm. yeah. groups, but like that, 
combined with the rigging, combined with like running catering and events and stuff like that, like it all sort of makes a lot of sense it in my totally mind. It totally does. It totally does. It all makes yeah. huge, huge, huge sense. I actually, what I've discovered this summer in creating 25 music festivals in three months. <laughs> it's casual. No big. I love it. I love <laughs> making festivals. I want to make festivals all day long. I have the best festival crew you've ever met in your entire life. This is what I Would want to do. Would you call them festival? They're festival? the festivals. Right. They are the festivals. <laughs> they're really fun. Mostly Aww. the reason that they're great in my mind is because they are, they're very focused much more than anything else. They're focused on your visual and audio experience. So they're very mm -hmm. focused on what the stage looks and sounds like. And, um, we had speedy yeah. Ortiz last Friday and they mm -hmm. got set up, tuned, started a song, you know, played a little bit of a song, stopped. And the guy, the, the very talented person on the soundboard said, how's the stage sound? And they said, perfect. Like they didn't need to change anything. Then they did sound check. Wow. But like, it, it, the sound is so good. And the people, Dead Moon Audio, who are running the sound are so good. They're so good. Then that's not, this is outdoors, yes. right? So that's, that's like a whole other it situation. It really is. And you know what? I yeah. like it. Yeah. I like outdoors. On, so we focus mostly on the tech, but also on the look and feel. It's very pretty. There's a lot of twinkly lights. I like twinkly I too. lights. I, twinkly lights kind of make everything mm -hmm. better. Uh, I have a question. Do, do you have experience then with like, what's, what's your sound, like live sound experience? Oh, you... so my live sound experience was that I was on tour with yeah. Heat Miser and I was told that I couldn't run sound because I'm a girl. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Uh -huh. the, the moment where I wanted well, to get taught go. how to run sound. I was like, I'm going to go on tour and I'm going to run sound. And then I was told I couldn't because I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. Literally those yeah. words again. Just like the drummer thing. Too bad you can't play drums because you're a girl. I get hit by that over and over. The best thing about being a tour booker pre-email was nobody knew if I was a man or a woman until they got me on the phone. So I started to mm -hmm. know how to how to do that. I started to know how to how to manipulate that. I hate it when people call me he. I hate it. Don't be presumptuous. It's it's yes. also right. It's I mean it's also this thing where. And I, I think this is changing a little bit. I think it's definitely still the case where it's like for a long time, women had some roles in some spaces around like non-performance. You know what I mean? Like you're not the the artist, quote unquote, but but like doing the, you know, like supporting literally everything mm -hmm. else that people are doing that doesn't require tech for the most part. Like traditionally speaking. Yeah. I mean, I definitely did like, like, I, I mean, not running. Oh yeah. Sound, I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. you, I'm mostly saying that like, this is just traditionally, I think what has been mm -hmm. the case where it's like, there are these, these roles that folks are allowed to have, but you know, not that are like allowing someone else to sort of have the glory. If that yeah. makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So totally anyway, so you're the, you sound, I mean, it's, I think you have plenty of tech experience if, you know, especially if you were like engineering for example <laughs> in the circus yeah, yeah. um yeah and all of the camera stuff like this is all transferable of These course things, totally you know totally yeah. i am um, i have now after years and years and years and years an understanding of what is happening when somebody is running sound 
I do know what they're mm-hmm. doing. I know what the knobs right. do. I get it. I hear it. I watch it. I actually live with it. My, my partner is a producer. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> he's a mixer. So I actually live with songs being produced, mixed and, you know, being overdubbed and, you know, mixed <laughs> for hours yep. and hours and hours and yeah. hours and hours and hours. So I actually do have a pretty keen understanding of that stuff. For the for the photography stuff that you were doing earlier on when it was sort of like in the hardcore mm-hmm. scene in particular, how like because that was a particularly kind of like heavily masculine potentially dangerous space like how did you go about doing some of those like up close kind of like pit shots that you did without dying i'm so glad you asked (laughs) i really am i'm so glad you asked because i actually had i am too had a whole thing set up all right so here's what i would do i would get there (laughs) okay and I had my tiny camera with my little camera bag over my shoulder, and I had my flash on my camera, completely vulnerable, hot shoe mounted mm-hmm. flash, battery pack on my hip, which always fails. I would work my way towards the front, holding my camera over my head like a, like as if I was fording a river, and I would find the biggest guys, and I'd tap them on the shoulder, mm-hmm. and they would surround me, and sometimes pick <laughs> me up and put me somewhere like on the stage at TT's they had towards the end, the same base cabs, the same like PA cabinets that I have now for once I bought them from TT's Mm -hmm. and um, they, I used to sit on top of those because they were quite high up at the rat. There was a whole side stage we could stand on. Sometimes there was space in front of the stage that you could get you like a photo pit. Scooting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but m- mostly the way that I dealt with the really like the ones where there's really like a lot of people flying through the air was I mm-hmm. kind of crouched down <laughs> and stayed out of the way. And I had these like bodyguards because they wanted me to take the pictures because if I didn't take right. the pictures, then there were no pictures. So they wanted that. Right. So they would like help me out. That's yeah, awesome. It was really yeah, cool. I, I guess. It, yeah, it was. It was something that occurred to me. I was like, this, as a person, you know, who's been in those spaces, I don't always feel safe. Yeah. And so, like, I can imagine and if you're you like, can't, r- r- your job is to be right up in the front doing that all the time. That's a lot. Goes to the front. They, uh, the, yeah. um, I'm, and I'm not very tall. I'm somewhere in the range of five, three or five, four, depending on whether or not I'm wearing my docs. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not super tall. So it was actually, I was in a pretty vulnerable position because I was hard to see because <laughs> I was, I would sort of get yeah. caught up in the, in the fray very easily. So it was actually mm-hmm. really helpful that I had these people who would kind of look out for me because I'm not very big. That's, so that was helpful. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, so as far as like creating spaces in your, your own venues, cause you're constantly, you know, obviously whether it's actually the space of once or these like other, uh, new outdoor spaces that you're creating, yeah. how do you, what do you do to intentionally create safer spaces? Yeah. There? What does yeah. that look like so, to you now that, now that you're kind of like the one who's creating the space in the first place? Yeah. So I, well, so safer space, we're going to, we're going to define safer space. Safer space is a place where people feel safe, not only from like 
I don't know, COVID, but also from harassment of any kind. We do not tolerate that behavior online or in our physical space. So to that end, uh, we have a regular training. It's called bystander awareness training. And we do that with our Mm -hmm. staff in, in the entirety. There was a magical, truly, truly magical experience. Right before we opened, we had a tech day and the 12 people who are on sound and, and, uh, and vision, <laughs> AV, the 12 people that were going to work the whole summer all got together to build the sound system and the lighting. So, you know, like taking things out of their boxes and putting them on stands and stuff like that, plugging mm-hmm. it all in, making sure it worked. And um, I interrupted their tech day for two hours to get them on a Zoom call along with all the front of house staff who were all on this Zoom call in different places. And we did a training with Shauna Potter, who is a a very Mm -hmm. good, a very strong advocate for safer spaces and training. Mm -hmm. So we got on a Zoom call and there was like 25 of us. And at the end of the call, we had her on a, like a projector and like the Mm -hmm. sound system. And at the end of the call, we, I took the laptop and I turned around so that she could see that there was 12 people watching her. It was amazing. It was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. We also work with um, Calling All Crows, who are an Mm -hmm. organization that is specifically set up to work on like rape at festivals. They're they're all about eliminating sexual assault at festivals, bystander awareness training being very, very, very important for them in particular. Although Mm -hmm. it's it's bigger than that when you're doing it with a staff, but it's uh, because it has to do with de-escalation as well. They also, when we were in the physical space, we also would do like a physical de-escalation training. Um, We haven't done that in a while because we actually have a professional security team. But um, for mm-hmm. this, so we haven't done it in a while. But when we have a lot of people who don't know, when I feel like people are kind of getting pent up, it's like, okay, time to do de-escalation training. So we we work with Calling All Crows. Calling All Crows used to table at the physical once a lot. And mm-hmm. then we have kept in touch and we feel very strongly about them. And then Sadie from Speedy Ortiz gave through on Friday and handed us these booklets that were like a broken down summary of Shauna's thing. And Kim was there and I was like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta really pull this together because this is like, it's time. So we're going to try to get a meeting with Sadie and Kim and Shauna and talk about like creating, how can venues be helpful? Cause I work with Nita. It's, it's, Yeah, totally. Because that's, I mean, they're not, (laughs) I I feel like you're probably more on the front end, like more preventative, proactive uh, about this stuff than a lot of folks are. I think, Um, I think, uh, I think that it's, it's very, very, very true. But I think that there's enough that it's worth making sure that they're starting to get the materials because then the the pressure will come to bear. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And we need that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. And that's the thing, too, is like I've been thinking and I feel like we've talked about this here a little bit is like, how do we, you know, as spaces are coming back and things are like shifting, like how can those norms be shifted as we're coming back and things are kind of new? You know what I mean? Totally. I don't know. Totally. So we're all the new spaces and all however that's going to manifest, which we don't know what that's going to look like. We do not. There's opportunity, I think. (sighs) I know. (laughs) Who knows? I'm so stressed. And I know you... 
I'm it's sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. No, I didn't mean so to bring my, it up. My venue closed because of the pandemic and it's sitting over there empty yeah. and I walk by and there right. it is and it's just sitting there and I want it back and I'm so bummed out and I just want to be opening like everybody else, but I don't want to be opening because there's a pandemic and I'm like completely sure. conflicted. So we're producing yes. shows in other people's spaces this fall. We have yeah. a show coming up at the Elks. We have another one we're about mm -hmm. to announce at the Elks. We have one at the Rockwell and we have one or two at Crystal Ballroom, which is the new room over the Somerville. So we're starting to mm -hmm. move towards, we're starting to move towards having an indoor presence. And we're talking a lot about mm -hmm. what is the, the criteria to me, the criteria is you stay masked all the time. And, um, that's going to be hard. Yeah. Like when you're not actually drinking, you put a mask on. Yeah. Yep. And I wonder why people aren't using straws yet. We got to talk about straws. Beer is yeah. no good in a straw. I don't know. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. I don't know. It's the, the actual physical, like the COVID safety thing versus the, you know, safer space conversation. I feel like they're all in some ways interrelated um, because it's like, how attentive are you to the needs of the people coming into your space? Like, that's all what it is. And both of those conversations, I think, as somebody who's going into a space kind of creating events in a space all, that already has its own norms. Like that's a whole other conversation too, right? It's a big conversation. Yeah. So, so with that, I guess, like, so if you were speaking to folks in the industry broadly about like making change, whether it's like venue owners or, you know, people who are booking or bands or whatever it might be, what recommendations would you give for them if they came to you with wanting to know how to make change, make the spaces better? Okay. So first of all, I just happened to be the vice president of the New England chapter of the National Independent Venue Association. So this is a big topic. Neva, actually, I would love for you to take a look at a document that Neva created, which is called something like reopening checklist or something like that. And it's a, um, mm. it's a, it was a 26 page document. It is no longer a 26 page document. It has been boiled down into infographics. It's really terrific. But it's on the NIVA website, cool. which is N-I-V-A-S-S-O-C dot org. And I, I actually think that we're all scrambling to come up with, you know, we're all trying to build a better wheel or mousetrap or whatever it is that we're building. But the reality is, mm -hmm. and our fearless leader, Dana, has actually said, like, we're prepared. We have done this work. It exists we don't have to start from scratch. We do actually have mm -hmm. this document and, and it's pretty accurate. Like, you know, in New York, they have a, uh, a system whereby they actually registered people when they got vaccinated. Mm. So they have the ability to prove it. We don't here in Massachusetts, but, and in many places, there's only two States I think that actually got right. that together. So what we have is a variety of, software all racing to market to be proof of vaccination. And the one that we've done a deal with is called Bindle, B-I-N-D-L-E. And these things are going to be a little bit like DoorDash is to Uber Eats, right? Like you're going to get to the front of the line at Sinclair mm -hmm. and they're going to look for one and you're going to get to the front of the line at once and they're going to want Bindle and you're going to be like, yeah, Oh yeah, they take Bindle here and there, but they take this other one there and you just register for all of them. Your information goes in, it matches yep. your ID. Done. 
that I think is going to become a standard very quickly. And I think that the Neva venues mm-hmm. will probably go with Bindle because Neva is offering a discount if you use Bindle on Bindle through Neva. We will use Bindle at once if we, and we'll see how we feel. Yeah. So it, yeah. yeah. So it's a, so there's that. I think people should keep their masks on. I think they should stop sharing germs. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a good idea right now. I think they should keep them on. I do see places requiring that. And I think that's great. I think that getting vaccinated matters. And I know that in New York, you have to be vaccinated. I would like to also say that you have to be vaccinated. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think that the national right now, and by the way, everybody is kind of following Bowery and Live Nation on this one. The majors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They were the first ones to put out a big statement and Neva, but like, it's all the same words, basically. I'm pretty sure what they do is that they require you to either be vaccinated or have proof of a negative test within 48 hours. Recently, Mm -hmm. I saw something that said vaccinated or not, this artist wants proof. Huh? That's, that's a big ask. You're going to a show Hmm. and you gotta, you gotta, I think that's a big ask unless Mm -hmm. you can do rapid testing. So there's also this thing that there's these trucks that are the rapid, but still the real one. There's these trucks that go to venues and do emergent, do testing for people that didn't get their tests. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's so many, like, I, I feel like we could talk about just the stuff that's happened since the quarantine with venues mm-hmm. all day. That, that's like a whole, I, it, the challenges that you and so many folks are experiencing right now are just wild. And it really is just like a whole new world. And I'm sorry that you have to deal with all that because it seems like a real pain, <laughs> but I hope that, you know, with everybody coming together with Neva, with everyone, that there's some sort of way that things can get, everyone can sort of come together in a way that's like consistent to make sure that things are actually happening. I think that's so happening. We're safe. I think that's happening. Yeah. I really do. I really do. I really think that's happening. Yeah. I think the yeah. venues yeah. have done Which is r- ridiculous and amazing things. You know, yep. venues, when they started trying to get money, everybody laughed, but we did it. Yeah. We got totally. a grant. And I was going to say earlier, by the way, in the business thing, We've, I've, I've yeah. never made money in my life. I'm an entrepreneur and I, and I try to do the business part right, but it's very hard to make a business work. And the goal is to make this one work, to keep it going. Yes. We're definitely not making money. We got a grant so we can keep going, but we're definitely not making yeah. money. This is a very expensive series. Right. Fun though. So fun. Please yeah. come to a show. <laughs> With that, um, how can folks stay in contact with you? OnceSomerville.com, which is O-N-C-E-S-O-M-E-R-V-I-L-L-E, all one word. It is also at Once Somerville on Instagram. It's Once Somerville on Facebook. It's even Once Somerville on Twitter. And I believe we have a TikTok. What? Come on now. So if people want to stay in contact with you, we'll have all that info in the show notes. So that's for one and, summer um, Personally. That's, yes. And please give us yours. Yeah. Yes. I was waiting for that. All right. All right. <laughs> JJ Gonson photo at mm-hmm. gmail.com is how you reach me. 
I have a Shopify. The only way to find it that I'm aware of is either to search Shopify for JJ Gonson photo or to go to my Instagram, which is JJ Gonson photography. There's also a Facebook, but I don't use Facebook anymore. So it just kind of sits there. But if you go to JJ Gonson photography on Instagram, I'm very active on DM. So it's a great way to reach me is that way. And also you can see some of my pitches. There you go. Pitches there. Pitches. All the the pitches. pitches. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Yes, of course. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. We could go on for a million years because we just barely scratched the surface to like all of all of the things that you've done. So uh, everyone should stay in contact with JJ. I'm going to stay in contact with JJ. I hope if if you'll have me. Do it. Um, (laughs) Do it. So cool. All right. Thanks so much, JJ. Cool. See you in the pit. I know I will be thinking about this conversation with JJ for a while. Lots of good stuff in there. Check out the show notes for links to see more of her photography or to learn more about Once Somerville. All right. So I've been meaning to cover this topic for a long time, and it feels like a natural conversation after the one in the last episode about gender-neutral language. So let's talk about pronouns, shall we? I will start by noting that I am a cisgender woman and that, of course, I am not the expert on this topic. I am sharing with you what I do know. Um, I've made a bunch of mistakes myself over the years. um, And as I learn more, I will share what I have learned. And if you are trans or non-binary person who doesn't want to listen to a cisgender person talk about this, totally get it. I, no problem. And ideally, if you are a cisgender person, there are tons of folks on YouTube and other online spaces who can share this information as well and better than I could. But since you're here and it is an important topic, let's dig into it. All right. So what are pronouns and why are they important? So first of all, pronouns are words that you use to refer to someone when you are not using their name, right? And for trans and non-binary folks, it's also a way of really, and I would say for anyone, it's a way of respecting their humanity. Uh, it's, it's, it's super, super important. However, not everyone has trans or non-binary folks in their lives, which is obviously a whole other conversation. So when they first starting, start using pronouns, it might require a little bit of mental effort and practice. And that's, I think, the case for most folks. And you will likely make a few mistakes along the way but it is definitely worth it as a way to show that you care. All right, so with that, here are 10 tips for respectfully using pronouns. First of all, when introducing yourself to someone, one way to be respectful is to say something like, hi, my name's Hillary, and I use she, her pronouns. That way she can, or they can choose to share their pronouns if they want to. And this is especially important for cis people because it normalizes the behavior, right? So it's not like, It has to be a big deal. It's just something that people do. And in the workplace, this might be done during like introductions and meetings, or it could be included in your email signature. So that's a fairly common practice at this point. Two, however, it is best not to require folks to share pronouns and to instead make this optional because you don't want to uh, force someone to out themselves in a case that they might not feel safe or comfortable. Relatedly, three, people may use different pronouns in different settings because they don't want to be outed. So maybe if you're interacting with um, a boss, they might use different pronouns than when interacting with coworkers or their parents versus like friends, right? 
four. The most common pronouns are she, her, he, him, and they, them. However, there are also a variety of sort of like newly created pronouns out in the world that people use that are often referred to as neo-pronouns, such as z-here or a-air. There's a ton of them, um, but I just want to note that that is a thing that also exists and that, you know, if you see that, that's, that's what that is. Five, even though you may have heard the argument that the singular they is not grammatically correct, which I will add, has been changed by Merriam-Webster and a variety of other places, it is wrong. Um, it is grammatically correct at this point, and Merriam-Webster, the APA, all of these different spaces are addressing that. And if you think about it, I mean, it's been used this way for years and years and years and years, but uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So think about finding a bag somewhere. You see the bag and you point it out to your friend and say, oh, it looks like somebody left their bag, right? Totally legit. No one would blink an eye. You would probably say the exact same thing. You're already doing it. So that's, <laughs> I just want to say it's not as much of a mental shift as you might think it is. Six, if you mess up someone's pronouns, make an apology uh, short and not about you and about how bad or embarrassed you feel for screwing up. So say just like, oops, sorry, they, and move on. Not, oops, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm so, 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 so sorry. It's just so hard for me right? Because that makes it about you and it makes it a bigger deal than it maybe needs to be and um, can make someone feel uncomfortable. So uh, just make it quick, move on. Seven, use they pronouns for someone if you don't know their pronouns, but don't just do that because you think someone looks non-binary or don't just ask for pronouns because someone looks non-binary, non non quote unquote, right? Anyone can use any pronoun and it's not connected to their appearance. Eight, if someone uses pronouns like he, they, or she, they, don't just default to the pronoun that you are most comfortable with. Try mixing it up, right? This can be affirming for folks. And it might be just, especially if someone is, this is new, and uh, it's useful just to mix it up. They, it's, otherwise, it feels like you're just, you're not actually recognizing the fact that this person um, wants to use those pronouns or that that, that, that reflects who they are. Nine, saying that you don't care what a pronoun, what pronoun someone uses for you or saying whatever you want or saying that you use they pronouns when you don't consider yourself non-binary or gender fluid or, uh, you know, that might, you know, actually feel like you're trying to be inclusive, but it can also be read as though you aren't really taking the identities of others seriously. Does that make sense? I feel like that's that one is requires a little bit of a mental shift because um, and I think it can go a lot of different directions. So it's just something I don't know that I have the exact right answer for that, but I do think it's something to be aware of. Um, all right. And 10, someone can change their pronouns across their lifetime or even within the same day if they use multiple pronouns. So it's good to check in with folks and to respect where folks are at on their journey at a particular moment. So once again, I do not have all the answers here. And this is, of course, super 101 level. I would love to hear thoughts from trans and non-binary folks around this topic if you think I have something wrong or if there's something to add. This language is always changing, and I know that there is some disagreement within communities about particular details as well, but this is what I've learned so far, and if this is new for you, hopefully it was helpful. So thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please uh, share with others, let people know that this exists, and um, yeah, thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. 